Welcome to Required Listening. I'm your host, Scott Goldman, Executive Director of the Grammy Museum. Every week, we talk to artists, songwriters, and producers at every level, from emerging to legendary, across every genre, in front of a live audience in the Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum. The discussions are intimate, personal, and completely unscripted. These conversations never fail to surprise me, and I think you'll feel the same way. For our inaugural episode, I want you to hear a discussion I had recently with the band Imagine Dragons, just after they'd released their most recent album, Evolve. The band, songwriter and vocalist Dan Reynolds, guitarist Wayne Sermon, bass player Ben McKee, and drummer Daniel Platzman, formed in Utah and ultimately moved to Dan Reynolds' hometown of Las Vegas. They broke through in 2012 with their debut album, Night Visions. Their album hit number two on the Billboard chart, and the Grammy-winning single, Radioactive, became a worldwide smash. They toured relentlessly, as most young bands do, and they built a passionate fan base for this emotional combination of introspection married to this very hook-filled, layered sound. I'm always interested in the conversations that artists have between themselves. How do they interact? Do they offer advice, creative or practical? The answers are sometimes consistent and sometimes surprising. And I think you'll find with Imagine Dragons, all of that and more. And all I can say is, beware of the Kenny G shout out. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my talk with Imagine Dragons. Give it up for Imagine Dragons. Have a seat, guys. Hello, hello. Thank you for being here. We're so pleased. I know these folks are pleased. So, um, you know, the title of the new record, at least for, you know, for those inquiring minds, Evolve, perhaps that's a hint as to where the band has been, where it's going. How has the band evolved since mm. since since 2000? Since 2000. <laughs> Yeah, would we would we recognize ourselves from 2012? Would you guys? I don't know. Would you? Uh, my hair was shorter. <laughs> I think so. So was mine. Okay. I just started growing it out. Yeah. Um, what else? I, yeah. <laughs> tell, me, tell me more about your hair. We uh, we've all changed our hairstyles. <laughs> mostly how we've evolved. Okay, good to know. Good, good to know. Musically. Oh. Uh, oh okay, okay. How, how have things evolved? Oh, well, I'd say this record, we really tried to take a, a different approach. We tried to be more minimalistic and selective. Um, a lot of times, we've self-produced the majority of our music, yeah. which, as a musician, sometimes can be great and sometimes can be to your detriment. Mm. Uh, and I think we, we witnessed a little bit of both of those things mm. in the music that we created. You know, you, you can easily say we need more, 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 more violins, yeah. more string sections, yeah. more counter melodies. And so we brought in producers on this record to say no, you know, this is good. Or slap your hand and say, no, you don't need cello on this song. Yeah. So that no more helped. cowbell. Yeah, no. yeah. yeah. Cut the cowbell there. We never did cowbell. We didn't yeah. go that low, but actually we did. Put, we have done cowbell. We put cowbell there, on this There's record. a good amount of cowbell on this record. We did. There's one song on the record that I, I, has I love cowbell. this. Already, already we're having an argument. And you know this why we put cowbell? You know why there's cowbell? Our manager. <laughs> it is actually it's the one artistic decision huh. he had on the record huh. that we had two mixes this is a true story of this song whatever it takes and one of them had no cowbell on the chorus and one had cowbell and he he, he would not give it up he was he like snuck it in no you know yeah 
More cowbell. It's the only part he can you know, play on stage. Years, years ago, years ago, Neil Young on his ranch used to record in this barn. And he had all this set up and this you know, amps and speakers or whatever. And he would record and then he would go out in the lake, literally on a boat. I'm so glad you know the story. And he would listen back and he yes. would say, and he would say, if he didn't like it, he would be hearing, more barn. That's Give right. me more barn. That's right. You know big, this story? Yes, big, massive speakers. And yes. if you sit at an exact spot in the lake, yes. you get the perfect stereo image. Right. Neil right. Young's a genius, and he's, he's a madman, too. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we're going we're gonna to get to that because, because I want to talk to you about artists that, that, that you've kind of idolized over, over the years. But in terms of Evolve, um, I've heard you know, words like minimalist, more colorful, um, um, and, and, and the fact that you guys worked with producers, um, you, it's almost like you were willing to be kind of reined in. You, you were willing to say, you know what, we've done the thing with, you know, 50 tracks of, you know, horns and harmonicas and whatever it is, you know, we needed to fill out the sound. Now we're going to kind of get back to who we are. Is that how you felt? It was kind of like as producers, we decided we wanted to be produced. Yeah, you, like, you, got, you fired, your, you, in effect, <laughs> yes. you fired yourself. Well, we didn't fire ourselves. We, we were still very much hands-on in the process, but we yeah. sort of recognized that, um, you know, when we're producing, we try to say yes to everything. We yeah. really try to get into the studio, and if there's an idea that gets thrown out, we try it and we record it before we throw it away. And right. oftentimes, you know, it, it just it's hard to stay focused. So mm. many different ideas come from so many different angles, especially with us from all the different backgrounds that we have musically. Yeah. Um having somebody from the outside that sort of has a vision, a direction for the song to go and can kind of tell you what's fitting and what isn't and when to step away. Yeah. When you have enough, when you're no longer adding more to the song by adding more parts, when you're, right. you know, more is becoming less. You know, and, you have somebody to help you find that. that and, and I'm wondering if in, if in that process you found the recording, you know, the whole process of recording more concise, that you could do it without necessarily laboring. Yeah, you know, I think that's actually really interesting because <clears throat> if I were to be honest with you, I typically hate the studio process throughout these years. Um, most of our songs would start with either one of the guys sending me something that they had recorded on their own and then I'd plug it in at home and I'd kind of work on it and sing melodies and lyrics or I would start it at home and, and sing melody and lyric and it'd be a skeletal thing and it'd be this beautiful just moment of just creation, a spark and it'd be dirty but I love like I would get very attached to it and I enjoyed that process and then going into the studio felt like this laborious task of you know, having to amplify everything and, and create it live. And sometimes I really hated it. But on this record, it actually was a very enjoyable process because we learned that sometimes those those ways that you recorded things on the demo were correct and we yeah. used them, whether it was me singing into my laptop and we said, it sounds good, keep it. Um, or just not not spending, you know, 10 days trying all different sorts of things on a song yeah. you have someone to reel it in and say no you know because i would imagine with anything that um requires attention and focus if you do it too long you start to hate it and i you know i have to believe if you're if you're more concise about it if you're more focused on it and you're kind of more quick about it you get a better result yeah and i've noticed it's sort of a common theme 
uh, that I've sort of learned, and I'm finally getting it because I'm a little slow. But um, <laughs> limitations are actually really good. Limitations. Ba- boundaries. Boundaries are amazing. Without any boundaries, like, I don't know, like the Beatles recorded most of their stuff on a two-track or a four-track, yeah. yeah. two, two tracks taped together, basically. Yes. Right. And the things they were able to do with that are amazing because they had, it wouldn't have been as good, in my opinion, if they had a thousand tracks. Yeah. Like, I don't know, I don't want to bore people, but these days you basically have an unlimited amount of layers you can put on a song. But back in the day, that was not true. You could record one thing and then another thing. Then you have to bounce that to something and then you can record something else. Bounce mm-hmm. that to record something else. So it was very limiting, but like in that limitation, there was freedom and there was creativity. And so we finally had to learn, like, okay, just because we can do 256 tracks of Cowbell, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) No, they're all layered just on the quarter notes, just that tone. And and especially, I want to shout out to Matt, Man, and Robin, especially, because they're two producers that we work with probably the most. Swedish producers. Yes, they're incredible, and they were were very much laser-focused. Oh, and their eyes. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't even, they'd actually never said no. They would just look at you in silence. Like, we'd be like, <laughs> we'd be like hey, I at this. that point, you knew. Yeah. yeah. I can't yeah. tell you how many times we'd be like, we have this great idea. Like, I have this keyboard counter melody. Like, duh, duh. and they would just look at you and be like, <laughs> you know, it was really bad when they wouldn't make eye contact. Yeah. And that was <laughs> yeah. most of the time. That's so true. But that's actually perfect for us because that's how we work and that's how we like to be. Because I would just play a guitar for an hour and then they'd yeah. be like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the other word that I read that you guys have used about this record is cohesion, that there is a more cohesive sound. Yeah. Is that a result of all of this being more focused, not necessarily putting every single sound that you possibly could on a track? Yeah, I think that definitely has something to do with it. It's, uh, you know, we use the word clean a lot, like a clean aesthetic. But yeah, um, yeah, when you use, you know, not 10 different snare tracks and just a couple, and you really are pickier with the uh, audio that you're using, I think you end up with a more cohesive sound. That's what we found. Yeah. When you guys are are writing, um, are, are you demoing stuff and bringing it in? Is it something that you do collectively in the studio? What's the process like? Uh, it's all, it starts as a journal entry for me. Like, like we all kind of contribute to me basically lamenting about my, my angsty 14 year old self that I've been stuck in (laughs) forever. (laughs) And, um, so we end up right, like, I know this sounds so strange and we tell this to people and they don't believe it, but this is the honest truth for each record. We've written over 150 songs and for each, for each record. So we have. How many songs do you think we've written? Uh, 500? 600? 500 or 600 is well, a band. Well, if you're counting the early days, I'd say we, we could be a lot. A lot. <laughs> really a lot. Now, how many, of, of, the, now, how many yeah. of those songs are complete good ideas? Very few. Yeah. yeah. Most of them are yeah. terrible. But that process is I would wake up every day. And part of my process was to create. So the guys would send me something yeah. or I would create something and then I would sing. And, and the lyrics were my journal entry for the right. day. And so at the end of the year, we compile all of that and we look through them and we choose the ones that tell the most cohesive story of the last year right. and that also have a sonic kind of cohesion to it. But you, and, and Dan, in particular, you know, you're, you're talking about your journal entries. You've been very open about the challenges that you experienced during the last tour. Uh, depression. Um, you know, real, real emotional difficulties. And, and I'm wondering how, how that has 
played into Evolve? How, how has that experience informed what you did on this record? You know, I, I, uh, I dealt with depression when I was younger, but it really came to a, a serious head where I finally had to go see a professional and sit down with a therapist and go through things that I didn't want to go through that I've been putting off for a long time in my life. And that kind of uh, came to a head really during Smoke and Mirrors. I mean, it, night vision started, but smoke, just the whole, I don't know if it was, anybody who deals with depression knows that you have triggers. Certain things can trigger it, and then you can go into a state of depression. It could be a long period, it could be a short period, it could be a year of your life, it could be six months, it could be an ongoing process for five years. Yeah. For me, I would go in these cycles, uh, sometimes it'd be a month, Sometimes it'd be six months, sometimes it'd be a year. For Smoke and Mirrors, it really was the whole process. I was a pretty miserable person. And mm. and even creating the record. So it was a really a dark record. Uh, every single song, even the songs that sounded light, like Imagine Dragons can it sometimes. If you dive into the lyrics, they really I was really in a really dark place. But for me, it was, you know, it was part of my journey. And I'm and I'm proud of the record and I listen back to it. It's hard for me to listen to some parts of it because I know where I was and where I am now, which is I'm in a great place. But you know, I took time off the road and I met with a therapist for a long mm. time and really dove through things that I didn't want to. Mm. And then I, now I talk about it. And for me, it's actually really, I enjoy talking about it because I know there's this stigma in the world of a therapist and, oh, you know, you're depressed. And, and some people hold those things back because we live in this world of Instagram where everybody wants to show their beautiful moments. And that's fine and cool, whatever. But I think it's so important to also talk about our hard moments and what we struggle with and yeah. to make it more normalized because a lot of people deal with depression and hide it. And so for me to talk about it, it's been freeing. And I, I've had so many people who've reached out and said, you know what, thank you for talking about it because this needs to stop being stigmatized. Yeah. Like depression is such an awful word. I wish there was another word for it, like uniquely emotional. <laughs> <laughs> we can all sign up to that. Yeah. And, and, and I know that, um, you know, in the course of, of being more public about that, you've gotten feedback from audiences and, and fans. And, and tell us a little bit about the kind of feedback you, you've received as a result of being more public about your struggle. Oh, it's been beautiful. We have the most, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many incredible stories I've read from fans, whether it's letters or in person, from people who, who have expressed there are sensitive, emotional, vulnerable parts to us. And to me, I hold that as sacred. And it's one of the reasons that our concerts are emotional, wonderful experiences, because I look out and I feel like I know these people on some level because of their words yeah. and because of something that we share. And so I love what Imagine Dragon stands for, because I think it stands for emotion. And maybe some, to some people, it seems like it's over the top or too angsty. And that's okay. And I understand that. But for me, it's real. And that's who I am. And that's who yeah. I've always been. And I think our fans get that. You know, and, and thinking about the Smoke and Mirrors tour, and I, I pulled some statistics here. And you guys got to check me on this. So the Smoke and Mirrors. The, <laughs> busted. The, the Smoke and Mirrors tour, 110 dates, 42 countries, five continents. Is that relatively accurate? That sounds low. That sounds low. <laughs> feels feels low. I, I'm we were very upset one time. There was a list that went out, and it was like the top touring acts in the world, and we got number two, and we were yeah. so pissed. They don't count <laughs> we like, private games. That's not true. I mean, but as you look as you look back at that, is that a good idea? No. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Grohl. This is a true story. 
Dave Grohl, um, we were playing a festival during the Smoke and Mirrors, uh, like, end of the tour, and he came up to us and he said, I have been looking at you guys' tour dates over the last few years. I've been kind of watching what you've done. Stop. <laughs> Good he was for like, him. He said, I have never, with any of my bands, toured to that extent. You're going to kill yourselves. Yeah. You need to stop. You know, Chris Martin said the same thing to yeah. us about, like, our pace of recording and releasing stuff. He's like, just take a break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And and and, no. and they know what they're talking so, about. <laughs> yeah, who who are those guys? I don't remember. Did Chris Martin really say that? Yeah, when we oh. met him, you know, at that uh, the Austin. Uh, oh yeah, he was like a word of advice. He, oh, said, yeah. he take, said he said take time off after this record. And then we're like, okay, run to the studio. Yeah, make a record. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's do it again. But you know, before we get to the part where you guys do decide to you know kind of step away for a minute, um, how has the 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 band? And its sound in terms of doing all those shows and, and, you know, becoming this unit on stage. Tell me about how the band has changed over time. Well, uh, I think it's probably different for all of us. Um, for me, I think I'm just a little more comfortable. I think there were some serious uh, growing pains for me yeah. as a, as a how, human being. How so? I was, I was just a, a kid that wore pajamas to school. And uh, <laughs> even in the band, you can attest. Literally, our first band, band photo, he was in pajamas. I don't know. I was, you know, I was just a, a, a normal kid that loved music, and I loved to play for people, and that's all I wanted to do. And uh, this band has been, you know, obviously amazing, and uh, the success we've had has been unbelievable. Yeah. And so I think just a normal kid from, from American Fork, Utah, to be kind of thrust in the spotlight like that and to be out of his element, and for things to change as much as they did, it was weird for me. It, it was hard. It right. was, you know, people like people like that you knew for years would sort of treat you differently. Treat you differently, and you yeah. don't you don't know why, or like you wish they wouldn't have, you know. And uh, hmm. that's just one example. But you know, the smallest violin is playing for me right now. Yeah, <laughs> like anyone feels bad for me, but poor rocks. I know, right? Um, but nevertheless, that it is what it is, and uh, you you don't know until you do it. Yeah. Is, is all I would say to defend myself. Yeah. And and you did make a decision, you know, after after that long 110 shows, however many countries and continents, to to step away. It's like, you know what? We need to break, take a break. Hard to do that. I think it was necessary to do that. I think we yeah. were at a point where we realized that we were approaching the point where we weren't appreciating some of the blessings that we were getting in our lives from the opportunities the music was giving us. And I think when we stepped back, although we didn't, you know, completely stop making music because music is a part of all of our lives every yeah. day, it gave us the ability to get to a place where I think we got back to that mindset where we realized that we really needed music. You know, you step away from it for mm -hmm. a little bit and you fall in love, you fall back in love with the part of you that, really compelled you to get into music and explore music when you're a kid. Hmm. And you could fall in love with that process, the process of writing and performing music all over again. And I think that spending that time apart gave us the ability to rekindle that fire when we came back together and yeah. approach it from a more optimistic and maybe a truer place. Hmm. And and you, you released a track early on in February, I think around the Super Bowl, um, Believer. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering... You know, what part of you guys became believers, you know, in the process? Did that bring you back around to a certain degree? I mean, I think, um, 
I think Believer is a very vulnerable song in a lot of ways for me as a lyricist. And I think it's one of the first songs that we've written as a band that we all collectively felt, this is Imagine Dragons. This is what personifies us in a lot a lot of ways. It's angsty, um, but there's a, a, a tinge of redemption to it. And yeah, I, I think that it came out and you never know what to expect when a song's going to come out. Your fans could hate it. The world could hate it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, the four of us loved it. And we played it and we, and we felt something, mm. you know, and as long as you can get behind it, then it all works out. Okay. Because then if the world hates it, you at least can, the four of you can say, okay, we loved it though. I think the problem is when artists put out a song cause they're trying to make other people love it or something. And then if the world hates it, then you hated it and the world hates it. And you're <laughs> like, great. You know, not a good combination. Tell me a little bit about, you know, Dan and Wayne in particular, um, in terms of the songwriting, what is it about you guys that that sort of works? Why do you complement each other so well? Um, I think everyone in this band has a very clear idea of what the final product needs to be. And it doesn't really matter how we get there. Because hmm. I don't think there's ever been any song that's been written that was the same as the one before it. We, we don't, there's not like some process, some formula where, you know, we do some ritual and then we write a song and then we go home and have dinner. You know, Done. it's never been like that. You know, so much stuff happened, just me sending a guitar, a really simple guitar part to Dan, and, yeah. and he works with it, or a whole track, or maybe it's something he just came up with all on his own, and we add our instrumentation as necessary. So if it was the same every time, that would, that would, that would spell doom, I think, for us, because sure. that would just, then, it, then it would literally become a formula, and our music would be formulaic, and amen to that band. <laughs> And and I know that um, you know we've been talking about you know kind of the different approach to this record, and and now as you get ready to go on tour, I'm wondering if the approach to playing the songs live changes. Does it? Oh, absolutely. Um, we we definitely have a clear idea of what we want the songs to sound like live, but um, there's something magical that happens with any piece of music when a group plays it you know, 50 plus times, uh, it starts to change. Happy accidents happen on stage. Something happens. Uh, Wayne will play some tasty lick that everyone will be like, you have to do that every time. <laughs> I mean, if you listen to the way a song sounds at the beginning of a tour and the end of a tour, I think for any band, it's going to sound different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we, we especially love that part of the process. I think playing, bringing the music to life live is uh, all of our favorite parts of this. And well, if it wasn't, there's no reason we would Every once in a while you much. guys had a lick though, that's terrible and you play it every time yeah <laughs> and I, I know you i know all of you know what look i'm talking about right I now no i know i have no idea da, 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 da. don't don't sing it that's copyrighted <laughs> there's this lick i'm gonna tell you a secret a dirty secret wayne one no. day was like i have this i have this if i were like a mcdonald's jingle writer i know this perfect jingle for mcdonald's i swear and it goes dip it in my dipping so sauce. here's the deal <laughs> And so, you play it every time on Radioactive. So I hear imagine, it every time you guys do it. Imagine you have a McDonald's chicken nugget meal, right? <laughs> and instead of just having your chicken, and you choose what sauce, right? Oh, I want barbecue. I want ranch. No. Okay, so chicken nuggets in the middle. Around it is honey mustard, ranch, barbecue, Like Like honey. a, a flavor moat? I don't think that the jingle writers get to decide the whole marketing process <laughs> for McDonald's. And so anyway, so this guy, you know, he's, he's showing dip it in my dipping sauce. And you have all these different kinds of dips to do. I mean, how is that you, not a... They play it every time. Right? No, no. Is there anyone from McDonald's no. here? 
No, do not clap for this. Because you know Justin Timberlake got so much money for that. Can I tell you? No, let me just say, I can't tell you how many times that song is a heavy song for me. Emotionally, it's a heavy song. It's a song about depression. It's like this heavy song. I can't tell you how many times I've been on stage and I'm in the moment and I'm like in this song. And it's like, there's this one part of the song every time where it's like the end of the song, it's like going into the climax and all three of them do this. It's like... (laughs) In my mind, radioactive (laughs) lyrics are all about chicken nuggets now. (laughs) I want some chicken, that crispy chicken. The worst part part is now that I told you this, they will do it forever. They will do it forever. 100%. As opposed to before, where we were just going to play it every single time that we could possibly remember. We got to keep that song, you know, happening for us. You know, it's a great, you know, we love it, but we got to keep it. That doesn't keep it happening for us. No. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, jingle writers in here? The the Imagine Dragons ad agency, you know, you you can hire them. It's not a problem. Think about it. But it does it does bring to mind whether whether it whether it's songs from Evolve or Smoke and Mirrors or Night Vision you know whatever over time the songs reveal different things about them about themselves and you know and I'm wondering kind of what you've learned about songwriting and performing you know what the songs how they change and how they reveal different things about themselves yeah, I think uh, if I had to choose a representation for each song we ever wrote, I would probably most of them would probably be live, because I feel like that's um, that's what we are. We were yeah. we're a live band. That's how we started. Yeah, doing uh, the crummy casinos and the not so crummy casinos, but pretty much anything we could do, you know, we'd be playing live. We have a lot of hours logged on on stage. You know, love or hate us, that's one thing you can't uh, take away from us is those those hours we put in. Right, um, and so we're proud of those hours, and uh, we think it shows in the live show, um, and so yeah, I feel like the live shows are the, kind of the final evolution, if you will, of the um, of the right. songs. And and you know, let it be said that um, you guys did not spring to the top of the Billboard chart, you know, for lack of a better term, overnight. I mean, there were years of playing on the Strip in Las Vegas. God knows how many sets a night. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do you think that experience benefited you? Uh, I think that every band needs to go through that because I, I, in our time period that we've been a band, we've seen other bands that I'm not going to blast, but we've seen bands that came up at the same time of us as us that are now like not on the scene anymore. And some of the reasons that I attribute that is because if you get success and you get it overnight, you, you genuinely get it overnight. It'll ruin you. It Mm -hmm. absolutely ruins you because things happen. Um, egos happen. Uh, you you think that you're entitled to where you were because you're doing something incredible and you're entitled to now have a tour bus. And for us, you know, in a lot of ways, when we did break, we did break fast. But before yeah. that happened, we had four years of broke, living together in a house, mm. getting each other out of jail, um, getting robbed together, being, you know, just at a really low point and grinding the road. Yeah. And I don't know if that happens that much anymore with bands. Maybe it does, but the bands that that doesn't happen to, I can tell you, I've watched them break up because there's egos and they fight and then it's over. Mm. And it's sad because a lot of them were great acts. And, and, and I know when you guys finally got together, and, I, and it, I found this fascinating when I was reading about it, 
you were very serious about this. This this was not, yeah, let's get a band together because we can go score some, you know, free beer at a keg party somewhere. Tell me a little bit about kind of the early discussions when you first got together. I mean, the first time we ever got together to rehearse in Las Vegas, we had already agreed to a six-day-a-week, eight-hour-a-day rehearsal regiment and, you know, then after that first week, we managed to get gigs. We learned, you know, 50 cover songs or so uh, and added to that. And we would go and take the cover gigs on the uh, the strip in order to mm. support ourselves and then spend eight hours a day playing those songs and also writing songs, writing our own original music to play on the weekends. So, I mean, we were really devoting more time than you would devote to a conventional full-time job. Yeah to our music, um, we were never treating it casually. It was very deliberately something we wanted to do <laughs> as a career, something we had devoted our lives up to that point to studying. And, um, yeah, I think that approaching it from that really technical and very deliberate standpoint did so much for us to to learn where we were all coming from musically. Actually learning those 50 covers, we all went out and we each picked 10 cover songs that we loved from popular music for the last 40 years we all had different backgrounds, so getting to learn, you know, the history of our own experiences through music and getting to learn the way popular music has been written over the mm. last 50 years was absolutely invaluable for us in every, every way. Yeah, I'd be interested to know, tell me, each of you, tell me one cover song that you guys mm. wanted to play. I remember I brought a Santeria by Sublime was one of the cover ah! songs I brought. Awesome. Awesome. Wayne. Maybe you tell me if I'm wrong if someone else suggested. I, I think Cars was me. I I think it was. Uh, just what I needed. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, awesome song, awesome band. The guitar player for that band is incredible. Elliot Easton. I, I made them play Third Eyed Blinds, uh, Semi Charm Kind of Life with me. <laughs> Dan. That was such a hard lyrical one to memorize. <laughs> you dirty dog. I'm, I'm like thinking back on that. That's still to this day. I don't know if I know all the words. Nobody does. Like, bang. Smiling and she going and she gave me, she gave to me, say she needs motivation, little motivation. She going down and she goes down on me. Hey, man, I'm like a man to you. Do what you want to do coming over you. Keep on smiling, I want to go through. Won't stop that rhythm that fights you. And I speak to you like a girl for the first thing. And I like a damn bit of a... Like a freak show takes the stage. Give me the gauge of Asia. Anyway, so... Thank you. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah. And actually, one of our one of our first festivals, I got invited on stage to sing that uh, to sing um, motorcycle jumper. Drive by. No, 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 jumper with uh, Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind, which was amazing. But anyway, the so green in Milwaukee. Yeah, oh yeah, that's what it was. Uh, I would say sat at, uh, "No Satisfaction" by the Rolling Stones. I, I love Mick Jagger. I think that'll do. That'll do. Amazing. Was there, was there, just, just, just going back in, in, you know, in terms of your, your, your very earliest years and the kinds of things that you were hearing growing up, was there an artist or who was that artist or band that kind of perked up your ears and made you guys say, yep, that's <laughs> what I want to do? Who I don't like it? this question. Nothing against you, but it's because my, it's because my answer is so cliche and boring. It's the Beatles. And it's uh, and it's a good one, and we've heard it before. But yeah, and it's I okay. can't lie and say something. You know, it's it is my core of who I am. That sure. that is what music is. You're so generic. I know. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! I mean, it's hard to beat. It's hard to beat the Beatles, and and I would be the first to tell you that. Um, you know what? We could schedule a, a program here at the Grammy Museum with me and any member of this audience 
talking about any Beatles record and people would come yes. to hear about it yes. because that's how much impact that band had. I mean, I, there was never a point in time when I didn't know what a Beatles song was. I don't remember not knowing what the hmm. Beatles. You know, that's yeah. how my, my dad was obsessed. Yeah. Every single record on vinyl, that's all that was my yeah. life. So, um, thank what, you for what, that, I guess. What 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 about what about you guys? What 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 artist was it? I'd say Harry Nelson for me was the one that, uh, and so I'm pretty much as generic as you because yeah. Harry Nelson, the Beatles are like. Yeah. <laughs> but but I have but, to ask you because I've read that about you in terms mm. of in terms of Nelson. What is it? What is it about Nelson that that attracted you? He did whatever the hell he wanted to do. He didn't care what anybody thought. He sang "Lime in the Coconut," but then he sang "Everybody's Talking," and then he he had a, he sang the saddest emotional songs. He his heart was in every song he sang. His vocal he could do so many things with his vocals. And, um, and I, he just, I love Harry and he never got his due ever. He yeah. never got his due. Yeah. The Beatles even said, this is our favorite artist. And people mm -hmm. are like, cool. Yeah. Beatles, whatever. Yeah. But to me, Harry was just great I, documentary film. Oh man. I cry him. every yeah. time I watch yeah. that. And, and, yeah. and, uh, yeah. the point he did this incredible, uh, uh, animation video with the point with Ringo. He's just, I love Harry. Yeah. What about you guys? You know, if I'm really being honest about the first time when I was a young, young child and that something musically really Go connected with, with me. Britney Spears. Nope. <laughs> Kenny G. Oh! As, as a little seven-year-old kid, I just loved those melodies. I would put on <laughs> Kenny G music and this, <laughs> this album I got, it was electronic orchestral strings that I heard at a whale show that I watched at the Mystic Seaport Aquarium in Connecticut. <laughs> that is Cus fantastic. Cusco 2000. He's a one-of-a-kind guy. Yeah. That, may, that may be the first Kenny G reference, um, you know, here on the stage of the Grammy. Hey, play, play Kenny G for some kids. They're going to no, light no, up yeah, and just I connect it. to it. It's I, like there's something universally <laughs> relatable to the quality of those melodies. Fantastic. Can't fantastic. deny it. Uh, my older brother gave me a Gentle Giant CD oh, uh, one go. year, and that changed everything for me. And I fell in love with prog rock. Go, go, King Crimson. So you know, in, in you know, in in the course of you know releasing Night Visions and, and and Smoke and Mirrors, and the band gets bigger, and you guys are starting to go out and play bigger halls, and and all of a sudden it's stadiums. Tell me a little bit about how you kind of had to change your mindset to stay connected to your audience as you're playing these giant arenas yeah i think um as an artist i always when i perform i'm, a, I'm honestly i'm quite an introverted person but when i get on stage it's my moment of just freedom and i always try to look out at my immediate surroundings and see the people around me and and really see them you know there is one thing to look at a person but it's another thing to look at them and connect with them and for me even if it goes back you know however far it goes back or however close it is that I always have that. Yeah. And I really feel there's this magic kinetic energy in a concert. If you all really connect, it just feeds back and it just goes back. So long story short, I, I, I wherever, what, whatever room it is, it's always the same for me. Yeah. 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 Um, you, you had, um, and I remember this a remarkable experience on the 2014 Grammy award telecast. Where where you did a performance with Kendrick Lamar, and and you know I'm, I'm wondering first of all what what the initial rehearsals were like, how you know how did you guys connect? What did you find? Yeah. Where was the intersection for you? 
Man, there were there, it was way deeper than we thought that it would be because to, how it how it went down is um, Grammys reached out to us. They said we want you to perform, and Kendrick Lamar is performing. We asked him if he would like to do a coll- collaboration with someone, and he said that he wanted to collaborate with you guys. Would you want to c- collaborate with Kendrick? I said. Well, of course, we love Kendrick. And so that from the start, we knew that we had a mutual respect for each other. And so when we got in the room, we already had that to build upon. So there wasn't some weird, awkward thing of, I I know that I've heard people say the Grammys, like, you know, put these artists together. And maybe sometimes they do, maybe sometimes they don't. But I can tell you in our case, that's how it went down. We chose Mm -hmm. each other to perform with. And I think that's why it was a magical performance for us. We got in the same room, we geeked out on each other's music, and then we said, let's jam together. And we we sat down and we said, how do we want it to look aesthetically? And we talked about different things. And then I remember us all saying, well, we should be all white. Everything should be all white. And then we should just mess it up. It should just get destroyed. Um, Because the energy, we talked about the energy and what each song meant, his song and our song, and the explosiveness of it, but starting it restrained and then it having just bubbling and getting larger until it couldn't be contained and then exploding and becoming just this red dye. And, and, um, I, yeah, I get excited even talking about it because that there was so much energy in that room and then it came through on stage and it was a really emotional, magical moment. And I remember looking at Kendrick when it was done and, and both of us just saying to each other, this is the beginning of something great for yeah. both of us. And, and, and it did that. It really and, opened up the skies for both of us. And clearly it was, I mean, that was, you know, a, a re- remarkable moment, but one of the things, and Dan, you and I talked about this briefly. Um, none of you have shied away from taking a stand about social issues that, that you think are important. And uh, recently, just the other day, uh, you guys participated in something called love loud um, this remarkable, remarkable concert, and and Dan, tell it, tell us a little bit about the intention of the show and how it turned out. Uh, I, I was raised Mormon in a very conservative Mormon family in Las Vegas. I still am Mormon, uh, and I, I, I'm a unique Mormon, is how I say it. Um, I have kind of my own spiritual identity and, and, and belief system, but um, I learned, from, I saw from a very young age a few of my friends who were gay and they were Mormon. And the path for them was so incredibly hard and devastating. You're set up for disaster when your parents tell you that, or your church tells you that your most innate sense of being is broken or flawed or Mm. sinful. Mm. Uh, It sets a child up for a devastating life uh, because then your choice is to be lonely your entire life. Mm. Well, tell that to anybody and, and see what kind of a life it creates for them. So, I saw this from a young age and I was conflicted because my faith taught me that, you know, you were, marriage was between a man and a woman. As I grew up, um, it didn't, it didn't affect me enough that it was like, you know, I was this activist when I was a young kid, but I was very conflicted about my faith and I was conflicted about my faith in a lot of other ways too. I was always like the black sheep of my family. All my brothers, eight boys, one girl in my family, all served missions, all lawyers, doctors. And here I was wanting to be a musician and very conflicted about my faith and singing about it, but very metaphorically. So none of my family would know that I was dealing with this. <laughs> and, um, so then, flash forward, I got married to a beautiful woman from Eugene, Oregon, who grew up with no religion at all, astrology. I, when I first met her parents, they were like, sit down, we're going to do your tarot cards. Like, da, da, da. And I'm just like, <laughs> I thought these are like Satan's cards. I was pretty sure, like, you know. But it was amazing, and I loved it. And we fell so deeply in love, and we just were like, you know what? You take these things from your life. I'm going to take these from mine, and let's go start our own life. And at the time, she was living with her two best friends who were gay. 
and they were all the activists. They were they were they were you know marching at pride parades and stuff. And because I was Mormon, they were deeply hurt when we fell in love, mm. and they they never wanted to meet me um, just because of what Mormonism represented. This was during Prop Eight, so it was very mm. heated at the time, and yeah. everybody was looking at Mormons as just basically the enemy of, of the LGBTQ community. So neither of them came to our wedding, which was devastating to my wife, who's our two best friends. But I understand now, at the time I didn't, at the time I was upset, and I was like, why aren't your two best friends coming to our wedding? Even I, t I support them, but it was marrying into Mormonism for them, and it broke their hearts, and so I get it now. But So I kept seeing this divide between the LGBTQ community and Mormonism, or religion. And I just am tired of it. I'm so just burnt out on it. And uh, and so many of my friends now, I've lost to suicide throughout the last few years. Hmm. Um, Utah, the number one reason for death among teenagers is suicide. Sorry I'm talking so long, but I have no, to no, really, no, 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 no. Say really that again. About this. Say that again. The number one reason for death among teenagers in Utah is suicide. Um, according to the Family Acceptance Project, if an LGBTQ child isn't accepted in their home or community, they're eight times more likely to commit suicide, three times more likely for risky drug use. The statistics are devastating, and nothing is being done. It's just a blind eye is being turned to this. And so, you know, I just, I've talked with my wife about it a lot, and we, and we decided let's do something. So we created a festival called Love Loud just three months ago. We said we're going to throw a festival. We're going to end, and, um, and it's going to be about bringing everyone together. It's inclusive. We have to have the Mormons there. We have to have religious people there. Mm -hmm. We need the far left. We need the far right. We need all different faiths, non-faiths, everybody to come out and say, we can drop all everything at the door. We can all agree this needs to change. Mm. We need to love our youth. What does it mean to truly love and accept our LGBTQ youth? So that was the mission, and we announced it, and it was very scary because we decided to do it right in next to BYU in Utah, which is <laughs> the heartland of Mormonism. It's not a place for a gay pride, a gay like festival. So it was it was definitely shocking, and there were a lot of people that were upset. And then I did this interview with Billboard, and the title was like "Bigotry and Mormonism." Some Mormons were like, "I'm not going to his parade. Forget this," you know. But then. Um, the church endorsed it. The LDS church came out and endorsed Hello. this, which was a historical moment yeah. in a huge way. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and the festival sold out, 20,000 plus people, uh, all coming out, Mormons with their families, and we had transgender youth come on stage and tell about how hard their story was. Uh, pe people from every different community in the LGBTQ community sang, did different things, and, and spoke about how we as a community could be better. Hmm. And it was beautiful. It was so incredible. Um, and, you know, my family came out. We're a very conservative Mormon. It was amazing. And it speaks to the people in Utah who have been waiting to say, hey, hear us and, and know that we actually, we have our faith. We have these things. But something needs to be done. And so we're going to walk into a place that might be out of our comfort zone. And they came. And it was beautiful. And we're going to do it every single year. Good for you. Good for you. That's fantastic. So... All right, so so last question, and and I, I I read about this, and I have no idea if this track actually ended up on Evolve, Ooh. but I I read something. Don't ask this. Oh, don't. <laughs> can we say skip? Yeah, whatever. Go ahead. Whatever. I believe you're going to ask us about a track. Wait, maybe he that, won't. Um, maybe he won't though. So don't say it. Maybe it's something else. It had something to do with a specific percussive uh, sound. Let's just say that for. track is still in the can. Oh. <laughs> oh. Hey oh. Oh. Fair enough. Fair enough. We, Nobody we knows what we're at, talking about. We will so leave it like, at that. Yeah, yeah. We, we, will, we will leave it at that. So here's, we're, here's they do what know? I, Those two do. 
Oh, yeah. you know. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Just I'm keep sure it to yourselves. Don't tell anybody. Please. I'm sure some Spread of the people, word. Some of these people know, but I found that I found that hysterically funny. Nonetheless, it had great tone. It uh, sounded I, great. I have no doubt. I, I have no doubt, and we'll wait for it when, when it comes. Now out. it sounds like it's a fart or something. Now I need to clear it up. Let me just say, we there was we were looking for a slap noise for, on one of our songs. It didn't make the record. We slapped Ben's ass and we recorded it, <laughs> and it sounded. It did actually sound. Honestly, the acoustical value of it, dead serious was incredible. You know, I do squats. Did you ever in like, in elementary school, you know in, in elementary school that one thing where you like open it up and then you're like, whap. You know what I'm talking about? What is that called? It's like the whap. It's like two boards. It's like a clap machine, whatever, yeah. It sounded like that, but better. And we wanted that, but we didn't have that in the studio. And they were like, ha ah, let's just like slap Ben's ass. And then, and then we did it and we were like, oh, that sounds really hey, good. Hey, that's good. But we didn't want to tell people that because now every time you hear it, anytime you hear like the whoop, you'll be like, you'll see him naked and it's just like, <laughs> we didn't put it on the record, don't worry. All right, so we'll, we'll leave the visual images out, but um, guys, we could not I feel be like more... I'm being body shamed. Uh, <laughs> never, not, not here at the Grammy Museum. Um, we could not be more pleased that you guys took the time to come by and and chat. This has been fantastic. I know you're about to leave and, and go on tour, and we wish you all the best. So, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Imagine Dad. Thank you. That was my conversation with Imagine Dragons in the Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum in downtown Los Angeles. I love Dan's description of their music as emotion. It's such a, a great way to describe what the band does. And what marked this for me is the band's willingness to take a different path on the new album. That's a brave thing to do. And they embraced it. So that's your required listening for today. We'll be here twice a week, every week. Find us wherever fine podcasts are heard. Also, if you plan to be in Los Angeles, I hope you'll come visit us at the Grammy Museum. You can go to our website at grammymuseum.org for all the information on our activities, our exhibits, and our programs. Now, I'd love to keep the conversation going, so feel free to hit us up on all the social platforms at Grammy Museum. Finally, thanks to the team that makes required listening happen. Jason James, Justin Joseph, Lynn Sheridan, Jim Canella, Kittrick Kearns, Miranda Moore, Jason Hoke, Nick Stumpf, and the entire team at How Stuff Works. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Scott Goldman.